everyone. Welcome to episode 195 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. We're going to start off right away with a couple thank yous. Yes, big thank yous to Nessa and Heather. They are our newest Patreon members. Thank you for joining our community. We really appreciate your support. Absolutely. Chris, what are you currently reading? Well, I have had a hard time reading lately. Um, Our dog, B got sick very suddenly and passed away. So, um, you know, during the week or two of taking care of her and then the week after, I didn't really read a lot. I kind of picked up a lot of stuff that didn't get very far. However, the last couple days, I've been back into it. So I am um, <laughs> paradisioing it with Dante. We're having our conversation on Sunday. This is when I'm buddy reading with Colleen, Robin, and Colleen's Uncle Hank. So I need to kind of step it up. But I have a feeling I'm going to be reading more of the summaries and maybe just skimming the actual text than anything on this one. Because it's also, I think, the least interesting of the three Hmm. that make up the Divine Comedy. Because it's Paradiso. It's all about heaven and not as thrilling as Purgatory. (laughs) (laughs) I'm reading Big Heart, Little Stove by Erin French. She's also the author of Finding Freedom, which was her memoir that I loved about her restaurant, The Lost Kitchen, which is in Freedom, Maine. It's the restaurant that's so popular. And the only way you can get in is by mailing a postcard at the beginning of the season. And if your postcard doesn't get chosen, you don't go. I've mailed postcards for two years. I'm not bitter. It's okay. I I feel it coming. (laughs) It's going to come your way. Well, I recently found out how much it costs. And I think that having her cookbook is fine for me. So that's why I have her cookbook, Big Heart, Little Stove, which just came out recently from Celadon Press. And what I did is I went to the library and got the hardcover, and then I purchased the audiobook, which she narrates, and I really wanted an experience with an audiobook cookbook. It's an enhanced audiobook, so she does offer some little added notes and interviews with people like Ina Garten and her mother and someone who works with her at the restaurant. And then at the very end of the audiobook is an index. So you can go to specific recipes and hear her repeat them again. That's brilliant. Yeah. I was wondering how a cookbook audiobook would work. I mean, that's perfect. Yeah, it's so smart. And I think she said at the beginning of the audiobook that there is a downloadable PDF. I need to go and investigate that. For now, I'm just really enjoying it. And um, one of the cute little things they do is that when she has a cook's note, they do a little pepper mill grinding sound, which I find adorable. So cute, yes. (laughs) So again, that's called Big Heart, Little Stove by Erin French. Well, I'm making really good progress on the Peabody Sisters by Megan Marshall. I've been reading an hour every morning, and it's going really well. It's a big, thick book came out in 2005, took her 20 years to write. And it's about the three Peabody sisters. And their growing up years and young adulthood into maturity. It's not a whole life biography of them. But fascinating, such a great snapshot too of like 19th century Boston, and what was going on in the literary world and women's rights and possibilities. So I'm, I'm really enjoying it. In the early chapters, Marshall is talking about the mother of the Peabody sisters and the hard life she had because her family had been wealthy and came down in status due to the Revolutionary War. And so she spent some of her childhood and young adulthood chopping wood because her father was another kind of lame dad who wasn't around a lot. So there they are, you know, you need wood to survive for heat and she'd be out there chopping wood, which made me think back to when we did a tour of the old manse Hawthorne and Sophia Peabody's home after they first married up in Concord, Massachusetts. And the tour guide that we had, the docent, mentioned that it took 60 cords of wood to heat the manse. So Hawthorne did a lot of wood chopping, which is something you don't think about him doing, really, you know. Um, (laughs) In his long trench coat. Yeah, so I went and I started looking at how much a cord of wood is, really. So one cord of wood is 128 cubic feet. And so that's that's a lot of wood. So 60 cords of wood would be 7,680 cubic feet. It's a lot of wood. I used to have a wood-burning stove in my old place Mm -hmm. in Guilford, and 
I went through about a cord and a half a winter. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of wood. I mean, we get like a cord, but, you know, it's delivered. Mm -hmm. And the most I do is stack it and then cut kindling usually yeah. is what my job is. So with modern equipment, it takes about four hours for one person to cut a cord of wood. And that's with modern equipment. Yeah. So I was just thinking about that poor young girl and everyone else who still to this day has to get out and cut wood. But when you're a young person, how mm -hmm. hard that would have been to cut wood so that your younger siblings and mother can stay warm yeah. and cook. Yeah. Yeah. So Peabody Sisters, it's going very well. That's interesting too. I wonder if they went through more of it because they were cooking with it. Oh, yeah, I would yeah. think so. They had to have firewood year round, unlike what we do where we need it seasonally. Yes. I was just at the Mystic Seaport and went into one of the houses where there's cooking demonstrations on how somebody would have cooked in the late 1600s to the mid early 19th century when stoves and ovens became more popular, you know, the cast iron. And wood was a continual thing. And there is a story in the Peabody Sisters where the fire went out one night and one of the kids was sent to get an ember from a nearby neighbor, which was, I, I think, a couple miles away. I'm not really sure. And on the way back, the kid's clothing caught fire. Oh, my. And caused horrendous burns. So I am so grateful for the modern amenities that I enjoy. For sure. Yeah. yeah. I'm reading Fatty Fatty Boom Boom by Rabia Chaudhry. This is a memoir of food, fat, and family. Some of you might recognize her name if you were interested in that podcast that was very popular at the dawn of podcasting called Serial, mm. which was about Adnad Saeed. Rabia Chaudhry wrote a book called Adnan's Story and was very influential in helping him be released from prison. She's a lawyer and has a podcast called Undisclosed, where she investigates wrongful convictions. Mm. That is not what her memoir is about. Her memoir is about coming to the United States from Pakistan with her family when she was very young and what it was like to move here and be exposed to American food, which her family thought was wonderful, and they started eating a lot of very American food. And she had a ravenous appetite and put on a lot of weight. And it became something that she has had to handle in her life ever since. She's, I think, in her 40s now. I wanted to read this one part, Chris, and see if it is familiar to you at all. I had never weighed myself because, as far as I remember, we didn't own a scale at home. There must have been doctor's physicals over the years, but I have no recollection of ever being made aware of what I weighed. My very first memory of seeing my weight on a scale was in those final weeks of fifth grade, thanks to the goddamn Presidential Fitness Awards program. Do you remember that? <laughs> no, I don't. No? See, it's a generational thing. We're slightly different in age, very slightly. Well, I'll just keep reading. She said, if you've never heard of this program, you were spared the utter humiliation that the majority of kids of my generation went through as we struggled in front of dozens of other students to complete a series of sit-ups, crunches, and pull-ups, and a timed one-mile run. This was during the Reagan administration. And then she says her day of shame began with an achievement that I certainly didn't want. The very first thing we did that morning was take off our shoes and line up to step on a scale in front of everyone to get our height measured and to get weighed. The gym teacher stood to the side with a chart while one of the teachers weighed us one by one and called out the number to be written down. And so, of course, everyone else could hear it too. 53, 49, 61. And then it was my turn. And then she goes on to say, 100 pounds. She weighs 100 pounds. Then he turned to me and said, well, looks like so far you have everyone beat. You weigh more than any of other of the kids in the school. Can you imagine? That is fucked up. Like, no yeah. wonder yeah. we have such a problem with health in this country. And I have vivid memories of the pull-ups, especially. I've never been able to do a pull-up. And my gym teacher standing there, my very fit gym teacher, like, come on, just pull up, just pull up. And I couldn't. Anyway, that was one of the passages in this book that I laughed out loud and related to and felt horrible for her because it was such a thing for a period of time in, I think, like, I was probably like fifth grade. Wow. Yeah. 
So that's an example of her writing. She's a lawyer. I love her writing. I was drawn into her story right away. And I'm both listening to the audiobook, which she narrates and reading as well. And thank you, I should say to Algonquin, who did send us an advanced reader copy, but this is now available in paperback. I'm listening to Democracy Awakening by Heather Cox Richardson, enjoying it so much. Richardson is a well-known historian. She has a podcast. She's done a regular newsletter and Facebook Live conversations. One of the things she's really looking at is how our nation became so divided politically. So it's very eye-opening. I didn't know much about the Nixon administration. The only thing I remember about that time period was feeling sad for President Ford, who pardoned Nixon because people made fun of him being clumsy and falling and tripping and stuff. And I thought that was mean. I was a little kid. (laughs) I mean, of course, I know about Watergate and things like that. But I didn't realize how vicious Nixon was politically. My word is that he had a God complex, saying like, I'm the only one who can help America. And just how much he covered up and then his people's system for destroying opposing candidates and ways of thinking. So that was pretty shocking and eye-opening and makes me want to read a little bit more about that time period when I'm feeling up to it. Right now, I'm in the Reagan administration, speaking of. Yeah, ironic. Um, yeah. So it's really good to get such a overview of how things have unfolded and what has built upon what. A lot of it stems from the Reconstruction era, a lot of our current politicians are basically saying the same things politicians were saying back then when it comes to race and some people being, quote, better than others. It's hard to say I'm enjoying it. It's very informative, and I enjoy her reading of it. You can tell she's passionate about it, but she's not inflamed mm-hmm. in that way where you get distracted by the narrator's voice. It's not like that at all. It's She carries you along. Mm. Yeah, so Democracy Awakening. This is a pretty new release, and I recommend the audio so far. Y'all might get the sense that we're deep into nonfiction November, because we're both sharing a lot of nonfiction reads. My next is The Professor and the Madman, a tale of murder, insanity, and the making of the Oxford English Dictionary by Simon Winchester. We're reading the book binder as our fourth quarter read along. And that has to do with the Oxford University Press and the women particularly who work there. I finished the Dictionary of Lost Words, which had to do with the creation of what they refer to as the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary. And so I was compelled to pick this book up, which I found on the Gentleman Caller's shelf, because it's a true story about Professor James Murray, who was the man who was largely in charge of putting together the dictionary by taking these volunteers who were submitting definitions, organizing it and deciding what definitions would be used. And one of the volunteers that submitted the most was a Dr. W.C. Minor who submitted over 10,000 definitions. So the book opens with Professor Murray going to visit this gentleman to find out that he's an American Civil War veteran and is also an inmate in an asylum. So that's as far as I've gotten so far. It's kind of dark and atmospheric, and I'm looking forward to seeing what happens. Again, it's called The Professor and the Madman, Simon Winchester. And I haven't looked up the audiobook. I might do that as well just to see what it's like. You know, we have a YouTube channel where we talk about books. We usually post there like once a week, a short YouTube video. And when Emily mentioned that one as one of her Friday reads, people replied saying how much they enjoyed that book. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes to that video if you want to check it out. Speaking of which, I am reading The Dictionary of Lost Words right now by Pip Williams. I'm enjoying it very much. It's not exactly what I thought it would be. I had a different vision of when we were talking about words falling from the table where all the men were sitting around working on the words and she was underneath the table as a little girl and finding these words. So it's just more complex and detailed than that. And I am enjoying it. I'm reading it on my e-reader. So it's my bedtime book right now. So really nice to drift off to sleep with words on my brain floating around like that. Lovely. And reminder that the bookbinder read along Zoom conversation is December 3rd, 7 p.m. Eastern time. We still have a few spots. Email us at bookcougars at gmail.com if you want to join the conversation. Speaking of nonfiction, November, I'm also reading another one called Knowledge is a Feeling 
How Neuroscience and Psychology Impact Human Information Behavior. This is by Tori Swanson, and he's an instructional librarian. And I found this book, I came across it while doing some research about teaching information information science, management, library usage, because that's part of my new job. And this is just really fascinating. He's taking on the assumption that we approach information rationally and that people consume information rationally. And he's doing that by looking at the new findings in neuroscience and new findings about how the brain actually processes both conscious and unconscious thoughts and how it's all part of a network of networks in our brain. You know, because people talk about the lizard brain, our primal brain, and then that they think that we have this rational cap on top of it that's developed, and that the two conflict or are at war with each other sometimes. And what he says is really the brain has three parts that kind of work in harmony together. And it's not like a hierarchical system, it's a true network. So fascinating stuff to think about, and more on that to come. I'm actually thinking of putting that one down for a little bit and maybe starting with it in the new year when my mind is a bit clearer and, mm. and everything because I do want to give it my attention. Knowledge is a Feeling by Tori Swanson. So Emily, what have you just read? I just read something by one of my favorite authors. It's not out until March 12th, 2024. Put it on your pre-order list or your holiday wish list. It's called After Annie by Anna Quinlan. When I found out she had a new novel coming out, I did a little happy dance in my kitchen. This book is about Annie Brown. She's in her kitchen cooking supper, still in her scrubs from working at the local assisted living facility. And she asks her husband, Bill, to grab her an Advil because she has a terrible headache. And before he's back with the Advil, she is dead on the kitchen floor. And that happens page one. So I'm not spoiling anything. The rest of the novel takes place in five sections and they're divided into seasons, winter, spring, summer, autumn, back to winter again. It's the people who remain in her life, her husband, her four children, her best friend, Anne-Marie, parents, people like that. But the focus is on her best friend, Anne-Marie, her husband and her children, particularly the older daughter, who suddenly moves into grown-up status. And I think she's about 14 when the novel begins. You know, Anna Quinlan, her writing is just superb. That's the only word I can think of using for it. And I loved it. I loved the sadness that the daughter feels for the loss of her mom. And also one of the main themes is about how the grown-ups often think the best thing to do is to not talk about it. But all the kids want to do is talk about it. And really to make a person who's so important in your life disappear is not helpful. Right. Yeah. Not at all. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really what the book is about. And then also tension, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean it in the way that you use words and language and the way that relationships work. The tension between the husband, now widow, and her best friend and how best friends know you in a certain way and have a relationship that is different than your relationship with your spouse. And I thought Anna Quinlan just nailed that so well. So if you're an Anna Quinlan fan, I don't think you'll be disappointed by this novel. And I was thrilled to get an advanced reader copy. Thank you to NetGalley and Random House for the early copy. I highly recommend that you pre-order it. Again, it's called After Annie. And this is out March 12th. Do you think that would be a good one to start with for people who are new to her? Definitely. I mean, she has some nonfiction. So if you're interested in nonfiction, there are others. She has the one about why she loves to read. And then if you're a grandmother, she has one called Nanaville. That's the only book of hers I haven't read because I feel like I'm waiting. If I become a grandmother, I will read it. I also loved Still Life with Breadcrumbs, which I read when I moved here. I could go on and on. That's a dangerous question to ask me. Yes, I think it's a good one to start with. (laughs) Excellent. Well, I read one that I found at the latest Guilford Free Library book sale. It's Herman Melville's Moby Dick, Hidden Treasures, Found Poetry. And this is discovered by Stephen Durkee. I love that, discovered by. And this is from 
Provincetown Arts Press. It's part of the Provincetown Poet Series, Volume 11. The series editor is Christopher Busa. I mean, of course, you know, I love Moby Dick, so I was attracted to this book for that reason. And the found poetry thing, I think, is so interesting. So as he says in his introduction, which is to Dear Mr. Melville, he says, it gives me great pleasure to write to you. I have just completed a project discovering, quote, found poems in Moby Dick. Your prose is so rich. I have found over 100 passages that I have transitioned into poems. I have thoroughly enjoyed the endeavor. And then he goes on. I have only read Moby Dick once all the way through. I've read things here and there. It's on my mind to do a reread of, and these poems are definitely getting me in the mood for that. I don't know if this book is going to be available in libraries. I meant to look it up before we started talking, but they're fabulous, fabulous poems. I love found poetry. Remember, we talked to Shuli Kaywood about that and had her read a found poem when she was with us. Yeah, it's wonderful. And then he also has some line drawings that he himself has done just about whales in the water and, oh, fun. and all that jazz. When did this come out? 2016, I believe. Oh, okay. Let's see. Yes, 2016. And this is the first edition. So yeah. Again, so Moby Dick, Hidden Treasures, Found Poetry, Discovered by Stephen Durkee. That's so cute. I love now the Discovered by makes so much sense. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was only $3. I mean, I love library book sales. Oh, me too. I love them. And I also have a love-hate relationship with them. Because <laughs> yes. I go and I'm like, I'm not buying anything. And mm -hmm. then I come home with a dozen new books. I know. Yeah. I told myself the last one I was only going to spend $20. But the problem was I had $40 in my pocket. <laughs> So next year, I'm only taking one $20 bill in yeah, my pocket. Smart, smart yeah. move. <laughs> I finished Soil, the story of a black mother's garden by Camille T. Dungy. She also narrates the audio, and I read this hybridly. This is a memoir about Camille moving with her family, including her New York City-born husband, to Fort Collins, Colorado, to a very not diverse white suburb. And Camille and her family are black. Not only is her neighborhood not diverse, but when she moves into her new house, she discovers that her yard is not diverse either. And she wants to put in a pollinator garden with native plants into her yard and discovers that her homeowners association isn't overly friendly to that. That gets worked out. The memoir writing starts during her year where she finally attained a Guggenheim Fellowship, which she had applied for and applied for. She gets it, and it happens to be 2020. So here she has a year where she thinks she's going to devote herself to her writing, and suddenly she has a daughter who's at home doing school and a husband who's teaching his classes from a computer in their house. And the year unravels in certain ways, but in other ways, she can focus more time on this garden project that she has and ends up writing something very different than she had intended when she first set off. Camille is a poet and has several poetry collections as well. I enjoyed the book. She definitely focuses on the complexity of the landscape that she's trying to work in because it's very dry and rain is obviously an issue in Colorado. So there's not much moisture. So she has to think about the plants that she wants to plant. So she's focusing on that. And at the same time, literally the landscape of racism in our country because of things that were happening in 2020 and her family history and also being an artist and what it means to be a black female artist in our country and in the world. I enjoyed it a lot. It reached a lot farther than I thought it would reach. And I mean that literally, like it wasn't just about her backyard. And I enjoyed it. Kirkus Review called it thorny. And I was like, Ooh, that's the perfect word. You know, she was a little bit thorny, like in her description of the world and her experience. But I also believe that's her experience. It was a little disjointed. So I thought that it actually would have made more sense to me if it had been sold as a book of essays instead of as a memoir or a memoir in essays. I think it could have used a little editing in that way, but I am glad I read it 
and I thought her narration was really good. So again, it's called Soil, the Story of a Black Mother's Garden by Camille T. Dungy. Well, I read a short story that Emily also read. It's Like a Winding Sheet by Anne Petrie. And we read this because we were having lunch with some friends, one of whom had known Anne Petrie and really talked a lot about Like a Winding Sheet as being a great short story during one of the recent book clubs that we attended. So we thought it would be fun when we're meeting her for lunch to all read the short story and have a chat about it. And wow, it is a very short story, but it is so powerful. It was published in 1945, and then it was included in the 1946 Best American Short Stories for that year. And it's about a black man who is exhausted from the work he's doing on second shift. So he's not getting enough sleep. He's walking on a concrete slab the whole time at work. He's just exhausted. And he's dealing with racism. So it's a story that begins with he and his wife in the morning, and he's entwined in the sheets. So the tension that Petrie creates in the story from the very beginning, I just thought it was really relentless tension. So you know something's going to happen. Yeah. And it is so short. Chris and I yesterday had an hour drive. And I would say we talked about it for about 45 minutes on the drive up, and then talked probably another 45 minutes about it with these lovely women we were having lunch and tea with. And it's amazing how such a small piece of literature can be so thought provoking. Yeah, it's a complicated story as well. Like it's not a simplistic story, I wouldn't say, because there are some things like, oh, if only the small thing. Mm -hmm. I would call them subtleties. It's a good one to reread Mm -hmm. because the subtleties can be missed because they're so subtle. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. Yeah. So that is Like a Winding Sheet by Anne Petrie. And it is included in Miss Muriel and Other Stories, which is available. There's a new edition out. Yeah, and I believe that short story garnered so much attention that that was how she was then able to write the street and publish a novel. Yeah, she did win an award. She was in writing classes and won an award. And I think they were like, do you have anything longer? (laughs) Um, (laughs) It is a really good story to read in combination with the street. I think there there are some similarities and some differences yeah. Gosh, two powerful pieces of literature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that the story does is it deals with what we would call microaggressions now. They mm-hmm. were not calling them that back in 1945. Right. And in Camille Dungy's memoir, there's a scene where she's talking to her parents about her dad being out working in his yard and a white woman coming up to the front yard and kind of looking at him and ignoring him and then knocking on the front door And her mother answers the door. And the woman says, I'd like to speak to the lady of the house. And she says, I am the lady of the house. And the woman just with red cheeks just is so embarrassed, but then just turns and walks away. Mm. And what the parents say in this scene is between the two of them who are 75 years old, they've had 150 years of microaggressions like this, and you just get tired. Mm. And that's what this short story a winding sheet is a lot about how tired he is. Yeah, for a lot of different reasons. Yeah. yeah. This episode is sponsored by Book of the Month, a book subscription service that offers a curated selection of titles to choose from. The books are available in hardcover, and for you audiobook listeners, they've recently introduced a selection of audiobooks so you can choose a hardcover or an audiobook each month. You download the audiobook into their app right on your phone or tablet for an easy listening experience. If you choose to receive a hardcover, it is delivered to your door in their signature blue box. Roughly 80% of the books are debuts and up-and-coming authors. The remaining 20% are well-known authors that you would likely recognize. There are usually five to seven titles to choose from each month, and one of the cool features is that sometimes they offer early access to a book that hasn't yet been published. This month, I chose one that officially pubs on November 28th. The Last Love Note by Emma Gray, read by Leanna Walsman, is a comedic love story about a young widow raising her son, working tirelessly to keep up at her fundraising job. When she goes on a business trip and gets stranded in Australia, she finally gets a chance to process her grief. I chose this book because I love a story with a single mom as protagonist that involves travel and love. 
And the narrator, Leanna Walsman, has a fantastic British accent. And I chose The Helsinki Affair by Anna Petoniak. I chose to get the hardcover. And this one is about CIA agent Amanda Cole, who gets embroiled in an international conspiracy that involves high-profile assassinations and Russian blackmail. So to me, it sounds like one of those perfect international thrillers. And I can't wait to get my blue box. If you'd like to try a subscription, head to bookofthemonth.com to pick a book. For a limited time, you can get the first book for just $5 with code for you, F-O-R-Y-O-U. Check the show notes for links. Biblio Adventures. I had two really fun Biblio Adventures that were fun with the exception of missing my fellow book cougar. The first one was on one of Chris's work days, and it was going to see Sigrid Nunez in conversation with Willard Spiegelman at Bank Square Books in Mystic. And I had never heard of Willard Spiegelman. He was the longtime editor of the Southwest Review And his most recent book, he has several, but his most recent book is Nothing Stays Put, The Life and Poetry of Amy Clampett, who apparently was very well known because she was discovered at the age of 63, her poetry. So his book is all about that and the late discovery of her poetry. And she, I think, died soon after it was discovered. So she had a short but good career. The conversation was fantastic. She was there to talk about her newest book, The Vulnerables, which is about a 65-year-old unnamed female narrator during the course of the pandemic who's asked to go stay at a somewhat swanky apartment in New York City and is taking care of a parrot named Eureka. (laughs) And the opening line of the book is, it was an uncertain spring, which is a quote from Virginia Woolf's novel, The Years. And the book then starts to talk about how it's unpopular to talk about the weather, and that you're not supposed to start a novel talking about the weather. She's very funny. So there was a lot of laughs in this. And she said she started to do research about all the books that were started, you know, like it was a dark and stormy night and all of that. So the book, I guess, talks a lot about writing as well. I haven't had the chance to read it yet. I've heard Some of the people we know and follow are loving it. Spiegelman kept referring to this as her trilogy. The last three books don't go together, but I guess they're similar in that there is an older female narrator. One of them was called The Friend, which won the National Book Award in 2018. And the other, What Are You Going Through? And they're all pretty slim and well-liked in the reading community. I did want to tell you a funny story. Someone asked a question that I kind of thought was a little eye-rolly. It ended up, her answer was so good. They asked what the experience is like for her to have her books in translation. Because when she was introduced, I think they said something like, her books have been translated in 34 languages or something amazing. And she said that she reads German, Italian, and French. So when her books are being translated in those languages, she works very closely with the translator back and forth. And she said part of why she does this is early in her career, one of her books was translated into the Italian, and it was a terrible translation. And she said she feels really grateful that her books are translated, but it also can be a really harrowing process because sometimes seemingly they can't find words to use that are proper. And she told this story about her German translation that One of the words in her book is kinky, and they could not find a word for that. And they were using words like... I would have thought they would just use kinky. Well, that's always the question. Do they do that, right? And they kept calling her and they were like, can we use perverse? Can we use weird? Can we use crazy? And she's like, no, no, you can't. (laughs) And then she told the story that there is a famous translation of The Grapes of Wrath where the title became The Angry Raisin. (laughs) I've heard that story before. That's so funny. So funny. (laughs) She was very, very funny. I mean, it was a very literary discussion. They talked about a lot of different things, but I really enjoyed the giggles that also came with it. 
So I'm looking forward to reading The Vulnerables. And it was a fun night. I missed you because I thought, oh, you would have loved this conversation. How about you? Well, I was also in Mystic. As I mentioned earlier, I went to Mystic Seaport last Saturday and just had a really wonderful walk around. I always love going on to the Morgan, which is the last whaling ship in America that is anchored there and you can walk on it and walk around and they always have docents there talking and telling stories about the ship. That's always fun. And that's another thing that stoked my interest in possibly reading Moby Dick next year. Maybe you can go to the 24 hour read along. I'm planning on that. Yeah. Yes, that is on my calendar. That was the first thing I put on my calendar for 2024. Listeners, there are a couple different marathon readings of Moby Dick. There's one that happens in the winter at the New Bedford Whaling Museum. And then there is the one at Mystic Seaport, which is in the summertime. Yeah. yeah. We tried to go to the one in the winter in New Bedford one time, and we had a huge snowstorm, and we had to bow out. We were signed up to read. We were, yeah. Yeah. And and they said, oh, you know, don't worry about it. There's tons of people who can't make it. So I think a lot of people who were there, like locals who could get there, just kind of doubled up and read more. Yeah, it'd be really fun. Yeah. My second Biblio adventure was right here in Madison, Connecticut at RJ Julia, where I saw Michael Cunningham in conversation with Amy Bloom. Michael has a new book out called Day. It was coming out, I think, the next day. Some of you may know his name from his book, The Hours, which won a Pulitzer and was made into a movie. And Amy Bloom's most recent book was her memoir, In Love. And she was our guest on episode 153, if you want to hear her talk about that book. Amy started the conversation by talking to Michael about the idea of the element of three that he uses in his novels. And in this case, the three in day are morning, afternoon, and evening. And he used a really good example of if you have two things, and he took like the water bottle and the microphone, these two things communicate back and forth. It's just back and forth and back and forth. But then if you add my knee, and he lifted his knee, now there's this endless possibility of how things can communicate with each other and how alliances can be formed. And I thought, oh, it was such a great way to explain that. Yeah, so cool. Yeah, yeah that makes me think of the Peabody sisters and their shifting alliances and changes in relationships with the three of them. Her point she was making is in the hours, it was the three women in the hours. Yeah, Yeah, really interesting. And he's a teacher, he teaches a seminar once a year at Yale. And I was like, Oh, wow, I can see how interesting of a professor you must be when you're working with those students. He actually, sidebar, he told a very funny story about similes, and how he really works with his students on similes. And he had one student who just, she was probably the best writer in the class, but would not give up on her overuse of simile. And she had written a piece that said, the woman was in the garden, and she folded like a lawn chair. And so he made her meet, not made, he invited her (laughs) to meet him in the garden outside of their seminar room. And he fell into the garden. And she was like, what are you doing? And he said, did I just look like a lawn chair folding when I did that? (laughs) (laughs) Trying to make his point about how she described the woman in the garden. Anyway, (laughs) I digress. What did the student say? Did he say? He said she started laughing and did take that simile out, but did not stop using similes (laughs) at the same rampant rate that she had been. (laughs) But he was trying to make a point that I understand. (laughs) So day is told in these three parts, morning, afternoon, and evening, and it takes place over the course of one day, April 5th. He said he had been deeply involved in writing a different novel when the pandemic came, and he felt like he couldn't put the pandemic in the novel in any way that would make sense, and he decided to write a pandemic novel. And so the morning aspect takes place on April 5th, 2019, I think. And then afternoon is the worst of COVID in 2020. And then evening is as we've progressed to 2021 in the pandemic. So interesting concept. One of the things that Amy Bloom said that she loves about his writing is his beautiful dialogue. I do love dialogue in a novel. So I think I'm going to try to pick this one up. I've never read anything by him. Yeah, I've only read the hours. Okay, I think I don't think I've read anything else by him. 
in the Q&A, someone raised their hand and asked him what the experience was like to see the hours performed as an opera at the Met. And he said he did not have anything to do with the writing or any way they changed it to perform it there, but he was invited to the premiere. And he said it was lovely and it was a very odd experience to see this piece of his performed by Renee Fleming as an opera. And he said, particularly as a writer, there was one line, which he didn't tell us what it was, but he was like, I remember thinking when I wrote that line, like, I need to go back and work on that. And then I didn't. And then who would have thought, you know, so many years later, I'd be sitting at the Met hearing Renee Fleming sing that very sentence. (laughs) It was hilarious. He was very sweet to listen to. And then at the end, he really said, thank you so much for being here. It's really lovely to talk to readers. And he said it in a really impassioned way that I really thought was lovely. So again, that new novel is called Day by Michael Cunningham, and it's out now. And if you get to see him on tour, he's out and about. I highly recommend it. It was a very entertaining evening. Do you have any upcoming jumps? Well, other than my conversation with Colleen, Robin, and Hank about Paradiso, there's nothing bookish on my calendar that I can think of. I mean, we're going to see a Broadway show this weekend, but it's not book-related. My New York library card expired, so I am going to be taking that with me, and it would be lovely to get over to the Midtown branch if we have time to get that renewed. Yeah, Uh, I would do that before the show. That would be my priority. (laughs) (laughs) But I know it might not be Laura's. (laughs) Well, it's all about time and what train we catch. Yes. Yeah, because I don't think the library... You know what? I'll have to check their hours. I was assuming that they wouldn't be open when the show got out. I don't know. You know, New York, it's a city that never sleeps. Who knows? (laughs) What about you? I only have one thing on the books, and it's Tuesday, November 28th. So that's the Tuesday after Thanksgiving at 6 o'clock. Mona Awad is going to be in conversation with Lauren Akempora. And this, again, is at Bank Square Books and Mystic. Mona's new book is called Rouge. It's got a really compelling cover. I've seen it everywhere. Part of why I want to go hear her talk about it is because I'm hearing raves about it, but it's a gothic fairy tale about a lonely dress shop clerk. So it sounds a little creep factor, which isn't always my thing, but I'm going to give it a try. Maybe you'll come with me. It's a Tuesday. Oh, interesting. Good. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Check the calendar. Yes, indeed. It'd be fun. I love Bank Square Books. Me too. Yeah, it's a really great place. What about upcoming reads? Oh my gosh. I got some book mail at Book Cougar's headquarters that made me scream out loud. Sometimes I wonder about my neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> this is called The End of the World is a Cul-de-Sac. Great title. This is by Louise Kennedy, who was the author of Trespasses, which I talked about on episode 173. The pub date is December 5th. Thank you to Riverhead Books for sending us an early copy. That is a very interesting cover, too. It's showing two dogs chasing a rabbit. They look like greyhounds, too, don't they? They do, yeah. It's on the countryside. I was assuming that the cover would be like some California cul-de-sac in the middle of a huge development somewhere. Yes. Well, she is Irish. It does kind of look like the Irish countryside. It does. I'm not sure. There's no lovely little sheep or anything. It does have a little ominous feel. Okay. Cul-de-sacs in Ireland, they just don't seem to go together in my brain. That's a limitation on my part, I suppose. Yeah. I don't know. We'll find out. Interesting. Did I say it's short stories? Whereas Trespasses was a novel. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. And then I also have another one that has a compelling cover. This one is called The Upstairs Delicatessen on Eating, Reading, Reading About Eating, and Eating While Reading by Dwight Garner. Garner was the longtime editor of the New York Times Book Review, and now I think he writes book reviews for them. So really looking forward to digging into that memoir. Well, it sounds to me like he was spying on you. With that subtitle. Oh, because eating, you know that I like to eat and read and read and eat and, and eat and, and read and, and read, read about and eat. eating. Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. I can't wait. I did read the first couple of pages and I'm like, yep, eating and reading. Nice. <laughs> what about you? Well, I will be starting a buddy read with Britta over on uh, YouTube, her second shelf 
uh, second shelf is her channel, Viral Justice, How We Grow the World We Want by Ruha Benjamin. I'll be starting this one um, as soon as I finish the Peabody Sisters, which will probably be this weekend. And this is a, a bit of a memoir that she started writing during COVID-19. And it has a gorgeous cover. It does, yeah. yeah. A lot of color, a garden, colorful garden imposed on a profile of a person. I'm looking forward to this. Nice. This episode is sponsored by Liv Macy, the author of the Infinite Universe novels, a collection of fantasy romance, paranormal romance books combining the badassery of Angelina Jolie in Tomb Raider with supernatural abilities reminiscent of Arrowverse and the Eternals. Each novel in the series features a different couple's love story where fate bends to the will of soulmates. Characters make cameos across the series, connecting the fresh, unique world. Snuggle in with a beverage, a blanket, and Becoming Justice, the first novel in the series. Check the show notes for links to learn more about the author and the series. Okay, so... We annually, for new listeners may not know this, offer some bookish gift ideas. You can go back, maybe I'll put links in the show notes. You can go back year upon year, back to 2016 when we first did this, and see what our gift ideas are to get some ideas. Should I say idea one more time? Sure, why not? It's a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) So we like to look at non-bookish gifts for bookish people. Because we know that recommending certain titles, it's really great to do. But we also know that people have a lot of sources for that and their own reading experience for that. So we like to think and and look around at different things that you could give. So Emily, would you like to go first? Sure. We think it'd be great to give a Book Browse gift membership. Remember, we just had Davina on talking about Book Browse. And they offer a gift subscription. It's available at bookbrowse.com slash gift. They describe it as a year of great reading about exceptional books. So what a nice thing to give to somebody or to yourself, really. To yourself, yes. And we should say before we carry on that we're going to put links in our show notes to all of this. Yes. So you don't have to be scrambling for a pen and a notebook. Right. And the show notes are always at bookcougars.com. A second thing is something that we just got this year based on the recommendation of a friend. It's the North American Reciprocal Museum Association membership. And what this is, is a bunch of different museums, historical societies, and that type of organization have gotten together. And you can sign up at a certain level at the institution of your choice that participates in this program And then you get free admission at these other organizations that are part of this association. So our friend Robin had told us about this. We thought it sounded like an excellent idea. And we signed up the last time we were at the Mount, Edith Wharton's home in the Berkshires. And it paid for itself very quickly. Yeah, because you also, you get discounts on events at these places. You get discounts in their gift shops. We've used all of that, yes. including entrance into the you know place yes. as well. Yeah. yeah, so we've been to the Mount twice since we became members. We use this at the Old Manse. The House of Seven Gables. Yeah, yeah, so it's very, very handy. Yeah. And we enjoy it very much. So we'll put links to that in the show notes. Yeah. My next one is kind of hard to explain, but it's something that my daughter Rachel got me last year. And it's the letter E for Emily cut out of an old book. She bought it at her local farmer's market. I've seen them available on Etsy. So I'll put a link in the show notes, sending you to a couple places where you can see what they are. I could see you buying them for someone for their initials, but also spelling something out with them would be really fun. We are also featuring some of these things on our booktube channel. We're going to be doing a video on YouTube, doing a little show and tell with some of these items that we're recommending. So we'll put a link in the show notes to that video, which will be up by the time this episode goes live. Well, speaking of our YouTube channel, this is one suggestion that we've already showed, but we'll show it again. It's headlamps, reading headlamps 
to help you read at night in bed or in the dark or crocheting is a good option for that. So Emily has the headlamp type that goes around your forehead and you look like a cyclops. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) that's our different perspectives right there. You'll look like an explorer or a cyclops. So um, super handy. (laughs) And uh, the one that I have, I I purchased last year, a glow coussant light. And that's the kind that it's like a U-shape that you drape over your neck. And both of these items have different levels of light, like medium, small, bright, bright light. So we love them and use them all the time. And both of us have ones where the batteries are rechargeable, which is really nice as well. Yeah, just plug it in with the USB. The next thing is a poem on pretty paper. And this could be a poem that you write yourself or a favorite poem that you transcribe by hand in beautiful writing, or you can put it into your computer and print it on nice paper. I like to do this a lot. I always have paper that I've fancied up. And then if I'm sending a letter to somebody, I always enclose a poem. I also like to hang them all over my house. They're on the back of the door here at Cougars headquarters. We will do some show and tell with these as well. So you can see what we're talking about. The next suggestion we have is to check out the New York Public Library Holiday Gift Guide. They have great gifts year-round. I love the New York Public Library gift shop. They have everything from actual books (laughs) to jewelry and pens and clothing and puzzles, pencil holders. They have so many different things available at a lot of different price points. They're just great for the bookish person. Another thing that we think would be fun is to give a literary-themed board game like Really Loud Librarians. (laughs) Check out the link to learn more. (laughs) That sounds dangerous. (laughs) Not a game you can play in the library, possibly. Yes, indeed. Yeah. The next suggestion is something that I have that my parents got for me many moons ago. It's a book embosser that presses a page with a stamp saying that it's the property of you or whatever you want it to say. You can, these things are custom made. So mine says from the library of Christina Louise Wallach. And then in the middle is my initials. They have a whole assortment of these that you can get with your name, whatever languaging you would like. We'll put links in the show notes, but when you click on it, you can see that there are a lot of different images that could be on there as well. I just learned after Eight Years of Friendship, your middle name. Oh, really? Yeah, didn't know it. Yeah, do you know my name? Anne. Oh, see, what a great friend I am. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. So we'll do that. We'll show the embosser on Show and Tell on that YouTube video that we've mentioned. The next thing is an author bobblehead. You can also get custom bobbleheads at Bobble for a Cause. Yes. Oh my gosh. I came upon this because I was looking at Bram Stoker stuff. There's actually a Bram Stoker bobblehead, which, you know, sent me down the internet rabbit hole of bobbleheads. And bobble for a cause sounds like something fun you can do for an organization or your family or whatever, where you can have custom bobbleheads made with a face photo of anyone. So you could make one for your favorite obscure poet if you wanted to for yourself or to give as a gift if you know somebody's favorite writer or philosopher or chef is somebody you can have that created the organization bobble for a cause one of the things we like about them is that they have unlimited proofing meaning that when you send the photo in they'll send you a photo of the mock-up and any adjustments can be made a bunch of times so that you feel like you're going to get what you want when it arrives instead of having to deal with the back and forth through the mail. Much easier to do that kind of thing through email. Yeah. And one of the reasons we're starting with our gift guide early is so that you can have the time to get things like this done. Right. And to do the orders and all that kind of stuff. Bobble for a cause. They do ship worldwide. Nice. We also found a custom Recipe hand towel. I'm particularly interested in this one. Yeah, this is something that Laura did for a friend. My wife found this site where you can have a recipe card that's been written in somebody's hand exactly replicated onto a tea towel, you know, a hand towel that you'd use in the kitchen or hang it up as a a memento. 
So much fun. So Laura had done this for a friend who she had her mother's recipe for something, and she surprised her with that, and then had one made, too, from one of her mom's recipes. So it's a wonderful gift to give in memory of someone or to celebrate someone or to laugh about a bad recipe. I mean, there's so (laughs) many possibilities. For sure. Yeah. Last but not least, you know, we are the Book Cougars, and we do a lot of biblio-adventuring. So we think it'd be great to put together a biblio-adventure car kit. Yes, you could do this for yourself or for someone else. But we have a lot of suggestions for this. We've learned a few things over the years. Right. (laughs) So here are some of the ideas. You want to have paper maps and written directions with you. Because Wi-Fi is not always reliable. Amen, sister. Yes. 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 You know, snacks, lunch, coffee, tea are important. Usually that's the first thing we start with. (laughs) (laughs) We always try to have the addresses and phone numbers and hours of operation. This is particularly important if you're trying to do multiple stops in the course of a day. Yeah, to have that information written down is helpful because then you can just plug it into your GPS. Having the phone number is super helpful to just double check, are you actually open today? We have found that sometimes with smaller organizations relying on the website is not always the best, especially when seasons are changing. And particularly if you want to do a tour, it can be helpful to just actually speak to somebody in person. Right. And then it helps you plan mm-hmm. like what you're going to visit first right? and you know, kind of go with the clock. We like to stop at bookstores and libraries as much as possible on the way. One of the things we love about a library is you are always guaranteed a nice bathroom stop. Yes. Very important. We have so. been known to pull over at libraries on the way someplace just so we can have a little bathroom stop. Yes. And of course, walk around and ooh and ah. Yes. We know a lot of people take notes on their phone, but to have a notebook is, is really great with a pencil Pencils are great because if it's super cold outside, they'll still write. Yes. That is a thing. Indeed. It's also a little bit nicer, like say you're doing a tour at an author home or something, to whip out a little notebook to take notes is much more comforting for everyone than you whipping out your cell phone Mm -hmm. because then the docent is thinking like, God, am I that boring that they're taking out their phone to check? Yes. Or they're worried that you're taking pictures and a lot of places you're not allowed to take pictures. Yeah. Yeah. And, And you know, you take your phone out and you get distracted. We all do. Exactly. So that's really good. We also recommend that you have cash, a debit card, but also an actual credit card. Because we have learned that sometimes if you're going someplace where there's only metered parking, debit cards don't always work. You sometimes have to have a credit card. Yep. Have an umbrella and a raincoat and a change of clothes, including shoes, just in case. Nothing's worse than sloshing through a quiet museum. (laughs) Right. Yes. Along with that, having sunscreen, bug spray, flashlight is nice to have in your car all the time, probably. And then one thing we both do is we have a box of books in our cars because you never know when you're going to come past another little free library. Yes, which we always screech. Yes, we always hit the brakes for them and usually find a book. We usually help organize them if they need to be organized because sometimes they do get jumbled. And then we'll leave a couple books, whatever space there is. It's just a wonderful way to repurpose your books. Yes, 100%. <laughs> Rehome them, I yes. suppose, right? <laughs> we sometimes post along social media as we go. Sometimes it's the right day and time to do that. Sometimes it's too distracting from what we're trying to accomplish. So we do it days later or that evening. Right, yeah. And so as Emily said, it's always good to you know ask if you can take photographs. If you're going to a place you've been really excited about, and there are certain things you want to photograph, you might jot a note to yourself and have a little bit of a checklist, especially if it's been a long drive or you've actually flown somewhere. You know, you don't want to get back on the plane and think like, oh my God, I forgot to take a picture of that tree or whatever the case is. Or like when I went to see Amy Bloom and Michael Cunningham, I took one picture and then totally forgot to take my phone out again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, Which means I had a great time, but then I didn't have some exciting things to post at the end of the day. Yeah. But it's nice. And, and, you know, we know that you can always get photos online, but there's something about having your own photo from your own angles and everything that's kind of special. And maybe most importantly, be sure to check your gas gauge. We have gotten in trouble 
Yes, we have. <laughs> we get carried away and chit chatty and, you know, forget that very important detail. Absolutely. It's happened a couple times where it's like, oh, geez, are we going to make it to the next <laughs> gas station? Because, yeah, I, I feel like I'm on vacation. You know, it's like when you first hop into a rental car, like I forget about gas as mm-hmm. if it's yeah. magic and yeah. it's just going to fill itself up. And then the last thing we always just want to remind everyone is to always be aware of your surroundings for your own safety. I mean, this is anything from who is around you to the stairs you're walking down. It's just really important to be super aware. Yeah. And maybe even lastly, lastly, if you are so inclined, feel free to email the book cougars at gmail.com and let us know about your Biblio adventure. We'd love to hear about it. Absolutely. We do. And we wish you all the best of holidays, and hopefully your holidays include not only Biblio Adventures, but lots of happy reading. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media, Goodreads, or email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. If you'd like to help support our podcast, please tell others about us, leave a review wherever you listen, and consider becoming a patron. Even a dollar a month is a big help. Learn more about that on our website, bookcougars.com, where you'll find the show notes for this and all of our past episodes. Thanks, everybody. This episode was edited by Pat Keogh Sound Design.